Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. This is the word of God. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Our Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you for your love for us. We are so grateful that we worship in a church, in a country, in a place where we can openly stand before you, proclaim your word, give reverence to you for the greatness of what you've done for us. So with gratitude this morning, Lord, we ask that you would bless our understanding of this passage and us to your service. For us in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I live about two miles south of the church here. And last evening as I was just sitting on the back porch listening and reading a little bit, there was a band playing somewhere near me. It was a garage band, perhaps. I don't know what the occasion was, what was going on, but it was a band that was playing the songs of Bon Jovi and Journey and, and uh, Neil Diamond and others. And I listened to them, and I thought, well, they're not that bad, but they're also a little bit pitchy here and there. They're not that good either, but they're trying. I thought, that's as good as it can get. But as you listen to them, you know, I thought, although they're doing a good enough job, I knew they were not authentic. Years ago, Deanne and I went to a Neil Diamond concert And there's only one person in the world that can sing the song, Coming to America, and that's Neil Diamond. And when anybody else tries to do it, it's just not the same. It's just not authentic. And I thought, they're doing a good job, but they're not real. Now, sometimes that's all we can get, and that's good enough for us. But we know what authentic is, and you're not going to buy albums from somebody other than the authentic artist. And I thought, authenticity is important, and inauthenticity has consequences. As we see this passage that Sandy just read, we see this Syrophoenician woman, that's what Mark calls her, she comes to Jesus and says, my daughter has a demon, Jesus, can you help me? Lord, son of David, help me. She comes to Jesus looking for an answer. Now, she was raised a pagan. She lived in Syria, Phoenicia. She was a Gentile of Gentiles. If Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, she was a Gentile of all Gentiles. She spoke Greek. That's all she knew, a pagan who worshipped pagan deities. But when Jesus makes his way into her territory, she comes to him and says, Lord, son of David, help me. 
And she does so because she knows in Jesus she sees someone who's authentic. This is the authentic Lord of the universe. This is the authentic God. This is the one that can make a difference, that can help me. When she's in need, she needed help. I've entitled the message, Faith Speaking Understanding. Now, for those of you who are familiar with theology, you know that I'm taking it off from the words of Anselm, the great theologian who said, Faith Seeking Understanding. And by that, Anselm, who picked it up from Augustine, meant that as believers in our faith, we continue to seek greater and greater understanding of who God is and what he's done for us. We don't know all the answers, but in our faith, we continue to pursue the truth. We want to know more. We want to understand in greater depth. And we know the way to do that is to do that through the door of faith. But here's this Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus and declares him Lord, Son of David. She is now one with great faith, speaking understanding. And these words must have rang in the ears of the disciples as they heard her speak to Jesus this way. Now, authenticity matters, and that's what moved her to declare this in front of the disciples as she begged for help for her daughter. Authenticity matters in our lives. Inauthenticity has consequences. The New York Times in the past several weeks has been running a series of opinion articles that are actually pretty good in a survey of a book that's recently coming out, and it's talking about beyond religion, the secularization of America. And if I can summarize for you some of what these articles are talking about, you'll see that there's a growing number of Americans everywhere, not just Christians, but of Americans everywhere, who are de-churching. They're falling out of their religious faith. And so the polls that are done, and let me just give you some of these numbers, are quite instructive to us. First, there's between six and 10,000 churches every year that are closing down and selling the property to others. There's a cathedral, a, church, a Catholic church in St. Louis, built in the 19th century by German immigrants that's now a skate park. There's churches that are being sold and becoming restaurants or apartment buildings. And this is going on all over the place. And although some other churches are building other places and growing, Many are giving up and closing doors. So there's this movement happening. The Wall Street Journal, it tells us, talked about uh, this, the importance of, re of religion in the lives of people. In 1998, the number is 62% of Americans said religion was important in their life. Today, that number is 39%. So a growing number of people are giving up thinking religion is no longer important to me. So it's fallen by about 40%. Atheists... In 1988, 2% of Americans said they were atheists. Today, the number is 7%. So it's more than tripled, but still 7% seems to be a rather small number. That means 93% are not atheists. They say they believe in something. Maybe we don't know what it is, but there's something they believe transcended. And so we see this discontinuity. People are, are disconnecting from churches even though they continue to believe in something. The problem is they're not finding authenticity in where they're at. And so we have a new group that pollsters are finding. They're called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. I just have no affiliation anywhere. I have nothing that I'm attached to any longer. And there's a growing number of even 
young people raised in churches that are now identifying themselves as simply nuns. I have an affiliation. It used to be when some old fellow might die in his death certificate, it would list him as a Baptist. Even though he had not been to a Baptist church in 60 years, he still identified as a Baptist for some reason. Now they just say, I have nothing. There was what was called the secularization thesis, and this was the idea that as science and knowledge grew, religion would fade because people would no longer have a reason to believe in God. In fact, what has happened, science, through astronomy, through biology, DNA, has shown us the magnificence of this world that God has created and led people to believe, many, that there must be some creator behind it. And so there's not like a denial that there's a God. Science has not pushed God out. But instead, they just disconnected. And so of those who were young people raised in Christian churches, their survey asked them, when did you leave? And of those Christian young people in the last 20 years that have left the church, 62% of them left at the age of 18. In other words, they went through junior high and high school, and then they gave up and never went back to church again. Perhaps they went to college, perhaps they moved out. Whatever it was, they disconnected from the church. At about the age 18, they call some of this movement around, they're seekers, skeptics, and faders. Seekers are the ones who no longer find authenticity in the church they're a part of, and so they go seeking it in other places. They look in other religions. Buddhism has some growing element to it because of that. They're trying to find truth somewhere. Then there's the skeptics who say, I don't believe in anything. But we're talking now about the faders, those who just fade away. Of the 62% of those young people who leave the church after age 18, and you notice there, it's about at the same time they no longer believe in Santa Claus. In other words, their faith in God seems to be little different than their understanding of Santa Claus. And as they grow in understanding that there is no Santa Claus, they see now that there perhaps is no God either. So they fade away. Another 28% leave before they're 29 and so 90% of those who leave the church do so before they're 29, never to return again. They're giving up their faith. They're fading away. And I think the reason is, is because they're not finding authenticity in the lives of the church they're a part of. A lot of churches have made a lot of gains numerically during the 80s and 90s by kind of drowning out all the theology and leaving it to be a very social sort of organization, thinking that would attract people. And it did. But it's also now in the minds of those who grew up through that become apparent to them that there was no real substance to your faith anyway. If church was nothing more to you than a social organization, I can find that elsewhere. And so they give it up and walk away. Authenticity matters. It matters in our lives as parents, in our lives as believers, in our lives as believers in the community. People need to know it's authentic. When this Syrophoenician woman saw Jesus, she knew this is the authentic Jesus. Now, we know that we are the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. He leaves us here to carry on his mission. Our authenticity matters. And to the extent that each of us can look to our own lives, our own hearts, and know that we lack that authenticity, we should remember also now that that affects those who see us, those who observe us, those who know us. So authenticity matters. We come to this passage and as Sandy read, we'll just kind of go through this and, and hit a few points. Notice what we see. And Jesus went from there, and this is Galilee, and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. 
Tyre and Sidon were about uh, 25 miles uh, north of Galilee where Jesus was. Uh, Sidon was 25 miles north of Tyre. So Jesus now, who's been pressed by the multitudes, they've been on him. They're looking for miracles. They're looking for help. He's now feeling the pressure of all of that. He's feeling the pressure of, of Herod Antipas, who's now after Jesus. They think perhaps this is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. And so now he's feeling pressure there. He's feeling pressure from the religious establishment, the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, the Jewish leaders now who are after him, accusing him of, of uh, doing things on behalf of the devil. And so now Jesus, knowing that his time is getting short, decides it's time for him and his disciples to move away from Galilee where they had been and to move northwest towards the, 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 sea of, uh, the Mediterranean Sea on the coast and just find some peace there. Now Jesus was not going on a vacation. He was taking something of a retreat where he's going to now invest himself in the lives of these disciples, instruct them and train them, prepare them for what's coming. Jesus knew the crucifixion was not far away, that the road they're now on would lead them southeast around into Decapolis, the eastern side of Galilee, then south towards Judea into Jerusalem. So Jesus knew where he was going. But now he takes his disciples to Tyre and Sidon. Now this is a pagan area. The Canaanite, Matthew calls her a Canaanite, so she's a Canaanite, a Syrian, a Phoenician, a Greek-speaking woman. Everything going against her, but this is where Jesus goes, and she approaches him. She comes up to him and is in need of help. And it says, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. So she sees him and asked for the one thing that all of us need, and that's his mercy. Now, mercy is an important uh, concept throughout scriptures. It's used in the Old Testament and the New Testament over 500 times. The mercies of God are what we need. The mercies of God is what Israel needed. Uh, that's what Moses asked for. In fact, Moses knew it was God's mercy that would save him, that would lead the Israelites out of Egypt into Sinai towards the Promised Land. It was God's mercy that we all need, and that's what she knew she needed. And so she asked him for mercy. But notice what she does. She refers to him first as Lord. Matthew shows us three times where she calls him Lord. And this, of course, is a, a term of respect. It's reverential. She knows who she's talking to. It's a term of submission to him, of humility before him. So she comes and says, Jesus, Lord, calls him Lord. And then son of David. Now, if you know a little bit of theology, you know that son of David is a significant title for the Jewish Messiah. To be the son of David, as Jesus was, means he was a descendant of the house of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 tells us that there God made the covenant with David that he would make the king through David's line, the king of Israel. This is now Jesus. He is that son of David. And so even this Gentile woman sees and recognizes that Jesus is the son of David. So she comes to him in need, and she asks him for help. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So she asks for his help. My daughter... It's a word used here, not necessarily of a small infant daughter, but it means about my beloved daughter. She could have been older, she could have been an adult, but this woman had a daughter that's possessed of a devil, and she knew that she needed help. She needed help from someone. Now, she had in her pagan religion, perhaps, 
never had any benefit, never had any healing, never had any intervention. She never had anything come from that pagan religion that mattered. And so now she's turning away from it, coming to Jesus. And she turns away from it in humility. Now, in doing so, she's turning away from the religion she grew up with. She's turning away from the, the pagan idols, from the family that she had grown with, from her friends who are still in that pagan religion. She knew now that in making this move, she might be isolating herself, alienating herself from those she knew best. But she came because she needed something. She needed help. And she knew in Jesus she could find the one person that could help her and would help her. And so she comes to him asking for this help, begging for his mercy. She comes and says, My daughter is oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. Now that's interesting. She comes and begs for help, and Jesus' first response is to ignore her. It even gets worse, as we're going to see. He next calls her a dog and then says that the bread that we have is not for you Gentiles. It's for the Jewish people, the children of Israel. And so Jesus now seems to be, in this regard, very insensitive. If insensitive is even strong enough a word, he seems to be ignoring her, to letting her sit before him in need and not doing anything about it. And this, of course, raises a question about what was Jesus really up to? When you ask the question, what would Jesus do? In this instant, he said, nothing. He did nothing. So we see her coming. He did not answer a word. The disciples then see this response from Jesus, and they say, the disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. The disciples see Jesus' apparent non-response. And they then pick up on that and say, hey, he doesn't want anything to do with her. Let's send her away. And that seems equally insensitive. Now imagine if those with connections to social media had been watching this going on, what they would have said about Jesus and the disciples when Jesus ignores her, and then the disciples say, send her away. Well, just when you think now it's going to get better, Jesus continues, send her away, for she's crying out after us. And Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus now seems to be narrowing the scope of who he's really after here. And this speaks to us about the mission that Jesus is on. You remember in Genesis chapter 12 and 15, God made a covenant with Abraham that through Abraham and his descendants, which would be the Israelites, he would bless them and all the nations through Israel. That's Jesus' message. He came now to the house of Israel, to the Jewish people as their Messiah, rejected by them, of course, but he came as their Messiah to redeem not only Israel, but all people. And so he comes to the house of Israel, and he says, that's what my mission is here. Now, having said that, we see that he's actually left Israel. Galilee was all part of the region, the kingdom of, of, of Israel. Now, of course, all of this land was under the authority of the Roman government. It was all part of the Roman Empire. But there were these different provinces, countries as such, under which you might live. This is the first time that Jesus, in fact, Scripture tells us, ever leaves the land of Israel, the land of the Jews, and goes now into a Gentile territory. And so he goes up there, and he says, I'm coming to the house of Israel. Now, that might lead us to believe that he's not coming for the Gentiles. But in fact, we see in this story... He is 
now making a ministry towards those who are Gentiles. As he takes care of this woman, we've seen already before, uh, a few chapters ago, the Roman centurion that had a, a, a servant in need, Jesus healed that servant. Jesus does reach out to those Gentiles who seek after him as the Messiah, who know him as the Lord. But here he says, I came to the house of Israel. The woman now is very persistent. And here we see her persistence beginning to work harder. She says, and it says, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. She kneels before him. And the word to kneel, the word proskuneo was translated in other places as worship. Now, we don't know that she was actually worshiping in this formal sense. But in kneeling before him, in calling him Lord, son of David, it looks like now evidence that her faith, that he will shortly call a great faith, that her faith is a repentant faith that's now turning from her pagan idols towards the true God. And now this is her first act outwardly of her contrition, of repentance, looking for the Savior. So she kneels before him and begs for his help. This is a picture of all of us as we find ourselves in need, knowing that we have one that can meet that need. And the only way for us to have our needs met our spiritual needs, our physical needs in great way, is to kneel before Jesus, our Savior. And so she kneels down before him. Lord, help me. All right, now Jesus is going to take care of her. Oh, wait a second. But he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. All right, so now he ups it one more time and calls her a dog. Now, in any language, you can see there's an insult attached to this. It was common for the Jews to call Gentiles dogs. Uh, there was obviously much racial animosity between the Jews and Gentiles, and the Gentiles would have their words for the Jews as well. Uh, this sort of uh, was it is common back then. But he calls her a dog. Now, some commentators will rightfully note that the word used here is not the, the mangy street dog that just rummages through the dump, that this is actually the word for a house pet but it's still a dog. She still, he still calls her a dog. But what does she do? She understands what's going on here now. She understands the imagery that Jesus is picturing. He says, it's not right for me to feed, you, uh, for, to feed the dogs from the master's table. In the Greco-Roman world, when they would set a table, uh, they would set the food in front of the father as a provider, and then the children would come and eat from the father's uh, meal. They would share in what is the father's food. There's uh, a story that uh, Jerry Seinfeld uh, told some years ago when his child asked him, Dad, are we rich? And, and, and Jerry told his son, no, I'm rich. You're poor. <laughs> I have a lot of money. You have none. And we understand there's truth in that. We may think we share, but really we're poor also. And so this is a recognition of all children that, yeah, we are poor. So we're still feeding at the Father's table. And so the imagery that Jesus pictures here is the children eat first, and what's left over, the dog gets to eat. But now this woman, the Syrophoenician woman, she recognizes what's going on. And she answers, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. 
She knew that even in the homes of Jews that the children ate first, the dogs always still ate. And she knew if she was persistent that she too would have a benefit of eating at the master's table. That even though she was in need, the supply that God had for her was still enough. And so she could benefit from that. And she then plays with this. Now the disciples are listening to this. And just as they were ready to push her away and send her away, we see what Jesus does here is to say, that's what I was looking for. And I think when he was calling her a dog, it may have been with a, we can't see this in the text because these are just the naked words spoken, but it may have been done with a, 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 an eye or a facial expression to let her know, I hear what you're asking for. Keep on pursuing and you'll get what you're needing. Keep on asking. You see, Jesus spent a lot of time ministering throughout the territory of the Jews. And, and frankly, the Bible tells us, the Gospels tell us that they began to expect things from him. They came and they took whatever he would give and they went on their way. In fact, we'll see many who call him Hosanna as he goes into Jerusalem will days later walk away from him. And so he knew there was a lack of faith on many of those who it took from him. They took but gave nothing back. But she looked at him and he looked at her and he saw in her someone who knew her need and she knew he could supply that need. And he could see in her a faith that's growing. But he wanted to test it. Do you really want this? Do you really believe? Are you a dog? And she didn't bristle at being called a dog. Remember what Bentley showed us last week in that passage. What corrupts us? It's, it's not what we are on the outside. The, the dog part of her was not being the Gentile. The dog part of her was the same part that was a dog in all of us, the corrupted part of our soul, of our nature, our sin. And once we realize that we too can share at the master's table, we see this is not simply an insult. Her acknowledging this was simply her acknowledging her own need. And so she came to Jesus and said, yeah, you can call me a dog. I don't, I'm not offended by that. Just like each of us has to at one point in our life say, yeah, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I acknowledge I have nothing to bring before God. That's good. Now I know how to ask for help. And it's only when we know who we really are that we can actually ask for the help that we need. And so Jesus offers this to her. She knew she was in need. So she's not offended by this. And when, in this response, Jesus looks at her. O oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire and her daughter was healed instantly. In Mark chapter 7, I'm just going to turn over a page and, and read the story that Mark tells, because he adds a little bit uh, in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 30. And she went home and found the young child lying in bed and the demon gone. So there Mark tells us that she went home and found her daughter healed. So Jesus heals her daughter. Jesus does this because of this woman's faith. J.C. Ryle, who talks about this, notes that here you have the daughter, the demon-possessed daughter. She's actually central to the story, although nothing much is said of her. But think about this demon-possessed daughter. What did she have? She had one thing, and that was a mother who prayed for her, a mother that, that pursued Jesus on her behalf. And sometimes as parents, that's all we can do. 
is pursue Jesus on behalf of our children. We don't have an answer for them, but we know who does. And so we find the one who does have the answer. And so the daughter, not knowing at that moment what happened, undoubtedly had her mom come home shortly after and say, I met Jesus. I submitted myself to him. I asked for his intervention in your life. He's the one that healed you. That's the message that Matthew wants us to see. And even though Jesus is still working towards the house of Israel, that's his mission, we see now it's obvious his mission is being extended into the Gentile territory. It's not limited to the Jews only, but Jesus wants us all to see it's beginning to reach out the kingdom, its blessings to those who are Gentiles. And so we see this first movement here. Jesus is first silent and then apparently insulting, but in her persistence she finds an answer because of her humility. We look now at verse 29. Jesus has now left this region, which is up the northwest. He's now going to go back south to Galilee, but he doesn't go south on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. He goes to the east side into a region, as Mark tells us, called Decapolis. Uh, Decapolis is Decapolis, which is ten cities. It's a region to the east side of the Jordan River where there were ten city-states, uh, Gentile again, and Jesus goes that way. And he makes his way that way, as we see, because he's still on a Gentile mission, the mission to make sure that his disciples knew that the message of the kingdom would be reaching to those who are Gentiles as well. And so beginning in verse 29... And Jesus went from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and he sat there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So the crowd wondered. And when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel." Glorifying the God of Israel is an acknowledgement that this was Israel's God, not our God. So we see that they're Gentiles. Jesus makes his way to a mountain. And uh, it, it's several days over there. He makes the way. And when the people of the Decapolis hear that Jesus is there healing, they bring their people to him. Those who are lame, those who are moot and can't speak, those who are deaf and can't hear. He, they bring them to Jesus, and he heals them. Now, as we see the story continue in the next uh, several verses, there appears to be thousands of them that come out with all these different needs, and Jesus meets these needs. Now, in these healings, there's actually a significance to them. If I go over to Isaiah chapter 35, and let me read a few verses to you. The healing of those who are lame, the blind, the mute have eschatological significance. It is Isaiah's prophecy that the Messiah will come and will perform these healings. That will be the sign that the Messiah is here. And all the Jews should have known this. The Gentiles may not have, but the Jews should have. And so Isaiah writes, in Isaiah 35, verse 2, They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, 
and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The waters break forth in the wilderness, and the streams in the desert. Isaiah writes prophetically about this moment in history when Jesus comes and heals and performs. This is a sign that he is the Messiah. Now, the Jews should have known this again. The Gentiles were perhaps just now learning this, but they came out. And so what Matthew's doing in the context of where we're at is showing us, yeah, these are the signs that authenticate Jesus as the Messiah, the true Messiah, in performing these miracles. Even though it's Gentiles, it seem more responsive than Jews. Remember, Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, if the miracles performed in front of you had been performed in, in Chorazin, in the Gentile territories, they would have believed. Yet you reject. So Jesus performs these healings, these miracles. So many are healed. And then we see, beginning in verse 32, Jesus feeding the 4,000. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So we see what's been going on. The healings have been going on for some time. Uh, three days now out in the desert. All the food is exhausted. It's the summertime. They're sitting out there in the dust. Uh, there's no food to be had anywhere. And Jesus still has compassion on them. The word compassion is Latin. Passion means suffering. Compassion means to suffer with. So compassion is a good word to describe what Jesus does on our behalf. Are you suffering? He suffers with you. Are you in need? He knows your need. And so Matthew tells us of his compassion. And he's not wanting to send them away hungry. And so now we have the feeding of the 4,000. Now, it wasn't long ago we saw the feeding of the 5,000. And some scholars, liberal scholars, say, well, this is just the same story told in a different way. But certainly Matthew would know the difference. As an accountant, he would know there's 5,000 here and 4,000 there. He could keep track of this. So obviously he understood these are two different events. And so we see this healing, feeding of the 4,000. Now notice how it starts. Jesus says, I don't want to send them away hungry. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? That was a question they asked at the same time, the feeding of the 5,000. How can we do this? Where can we get the food? And Jesus showed them, get me some bread and fishes, and I will make it and distribute it. And so Jesus does so and feeds them. Now, most commentators that I read, all of them point to this moment again as another instance of the disciples' lack of belief. Where are we going to get the food to feed them? But perhaps this wasn't their lack of belief. Perhaps this was them simply saying to Jesus, asking the same question they asked before, knowing that he would then have the same response. Where are we going to get the food, Jesus? He said, I, I know. <laughs> yeah, we all know. And so Jesus now makes a provision. And so where are we going to get the food in such a desolate place? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have this time, guys? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. 
And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadan. And so he asked, how much bread do we have? How many fishes? Here we go. He makes seven baskets full of bread. Now, the baskets that uh, are uh, part of the feeding of the 5,000 were small baskets. Here, these word, this, this word here is for a large basket, big enough to hold a man. Uh, so this was a basket, not that you would carry on a picnic, but this is a basket that would be used in commercial transportation of goods. And so there's a lot left over. Now, notice what we have here. Jesus, with compassion, takes care of them. And I think there's several lessons we can draw from what we see in this passage here. First of all, notice, the point that Matthew makes is that Jesus has no rival in his power to accomplish what we need. The pagan gods of the Gentiles could not answer the needs they have. Jesus had no one to rival what he was able to do for them. Jesus' goal here is ministry that leads to worship. Jesus is meeting the needs of these people, and what do they do in response? These Gentiles, as he says several times, glorify God in him. Worship is the natural response to ministry. As you meet the needs of others, as you serve others, you know that their response in turn should be one of glorifying God, of giving true worship to the one who actually met the need. We see in Jesus the one who creates the abundance that feeds the people. So he's the source of all of our need. He's a source of our abundance. But it was the disciples who distributed the bread and the fish. Now, he could have done what God did for the Jews, the Israelites in Sinai, and that's had the manna fall down all around them. He could have not only created the food, but distributed himself in this way. But Jesus instead uses his own disciples to be the foot and the hands that distribute to the needs of the people. And that's the same way he's called us in ministry, to meet the needs of others. We distribute the abundance of what God has done for us in our lives. As God has changed our hearts, our lives, our understanding, we should be the ones now who are eager to spread that to others. So God's resources are never diminished. He uses us as his servants. Jesus has this limitless compassion there's no end to the compassion he love, he has, the love that he has for us. And so in every need. Now, in Mark's gospel, he tells the same story. But Matthew speaks of healing of many, the lame, the blind, the deaf. Mark chooses to tell us only of one, and this is a deaf man. And while Jesus and Matthew healed many publicly, Mark tells us where he goes to a man privately, a man who cannot hear, so Jesus can't speak to him but uses something of a sign language, picks up some mud, spits on it, and rubs it in his ear. The, the, the man knew, the deaf man knew what was happening. So Jesus meets this man, uh, his need, privately and heals him. And so now he has his hearing restored. He can now speak where before all he could do was mumble. He could now hear where before he was deaf. And what does he do in Mark except give glory to Jesus and God for what he had done? And so we see also that he meets all of our needs differently. Each of us come to him with different needs. Each of us comes to him with lack in different areas. But we see in Jesus the one who can give us the gift that we all need. The message of Matthew and of Mark and of all the Gospels 
is that here in Jesus we have the Messiah, the authentic Jesus who comes before us. All of us need to now turn our hearts and minds always onto the authentic Jesus. Now, even though people are leaving the church because they sense there's something inauthentic about the church, maybe about us, there's some truth to that. All of us, to some degree, have some element of hypocrisy in our heart. But that's who we are as humans. So as parents, as, as adults, we want to make sure that we do what we can to mitigate that hypocrisy in our lives so that others don't see that in us. But for those who are younger who see hypocrisy, you need to know also that leaving God because of the hypocrisy of those who are members of the church is also not the answer. That's walking away from the one who does have the answer. So instead, we're all looking to the one who is the authentic, the true Jesus. And that's what the Gospel of Matthew has done for us. It's shown us that in him we have the one who provides, the one who heals, the one who meets the needs of all of us. When Matthew continues his gospel, we will see in a few chapters, Peter give the great declaration when Jesus asks him, who do men say that I am? And he will say, you are the son of the living God. Do you know where Peter heard those words? Those words were probably echoing in his mind, in his hearing, from the moment that this Syrophoenician woman spoke those words to Jesus this day. Peter knew from her testimony that this was truly the Messiah. And that's our declaration as well. Truly, he is the Son of God. Our Father, as we thank you for this day and for this message you've given to us through this story of this woman, we know that it's in you that we have our healing, that we have our hope, that we have our needs met. All of us know in this life we struggle with ailments, with disease, but that in your coming kingdom there's healing, there's love, there's mercy, there's grace for all those who ask. None of us is so sinful that your mercy isn't greater that reaches deeper still. And we thank you for your mercy and love, for it's in Christ and we pray. Amen.